Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Hi, welcome back to a new episode of Another World is Potable. This is episode four, and I'm very excited. We're here with Andy Green. Um, He's part of Disability Action and Disability People Against Cuts, and he's been a leading activist and, I think, thinker um, of the ways in which we have both a more emancipatory, um, less ableist, and real strong solidarity and inclusiveness uh, with all people in the making of a, a better and more liberated world. So I'm, as I said, I'm really excited to have Andy here. Um, and I think I would just start, Andy. Um, maybe you could give the listeners a little bit of your history and background and you know, the kind of work you do and how you got into it. Yeah, um, thank you for the invitation. It's a really fantastic opportunity, which we really appreciate. Um, and I do on a personal level as well, Peter. Um, so, yeah, I'm a member of Disabled People Against Cuts, which is a, we describe ourselves as a user-led campaign network of disabled people. Um, we, uh, we, as a campaign, were established in 2010 outside the first uh, Conservative Party conference when they came back to power in the UK in October 2010. So this is our 10th year anniversary. I've also worked um, since before and all through that period at, an, at a, a local disabled people's organization in central London, which gives out advice and does consultation and training and stuff like that as well. Um, and I am also the creator of this year, the World's Independent Living Day on the 5th of May. Um, and I've done, you know, various writing and media appearances over that time. I've lived in the United Kingdom for almost 30 years. Um, I'm Irish by birth. I've got five kids here now. I've got two grandkids. Um, and yeah, I um, I won't say I enjoy campaigning, um, but there are elements of it which are really kind of um, essential to who I am as a person. Um, so I think that, um, you know, it's, it's often kind of, we talk, I think we, we constantly kind of talk about ourselves, um, kind of separate from the things that we do, but actually it's a two way relationship that I have with the campaign and I kind of, I'm an activist, but an activist kind of being an activist, give you know, nourishes me and gives me that kind of, um, um, fortitude that I need to kind of continue in my own daily struggle as well, you know? So um, that's kind of me in a part of history, really. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think would be important to kind of go over before talking about the specific work that you do is that we often think about different social struggles, but sometimes, and, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I think the actual really important radical history of disabilities rights and activism um, is not necessarily the one that is, you know, most brought up or under or known by people. So I'd be interested, you know, connecting your own kind of personal work that you've done as an activist and campaigner to this kind of broader history of radicalist, uh, radical struggles. Yeah, um, and I think that's a really good starting point because often 
kind of we we fast forward to the now or the very recent past and often that is kind of you know a really important struggle but you know we stand on the shoulders of giants particularly in the disability movement um and i think it's often uh really really critical that we kind of contextualize what we're doing now in the wider scheme of things and that you know often this isn't reinventing the wheel. It's you know, uh, particularly dis- disability activism is about myth busting and 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 kind of, you know, reinforcing those same demands that we started out um, in some cases centuries ago. So I suppose, to really, the best place to start is kind of thinking about, you know, um, how we understand disability today and what that actual word means and kind of you know, it's it's embryonic forms really kind of as we understand disability came out of really um, our relationship with uh, the industrial revolution and kind of pre-industrial revolution, particularly in the UK, which I had was a very agrarian society um, where disabled people, so um, where, you know, um, where the economy and society were based on land and trades um, very often, and kind of disabled people born into families would have a particular role. So if you owned a bit of land and you had a bit of farm or you reared um, animals, then, you know, if as a male, as a man being born into that family, um, I was born into that family and couldn't carry out the physical work of, you know, milking the cows and seeing to the animals or plowing the fields, then I would still have a role in, you know, c- uh, collecting the product, in raising the kids and managing the home. And I would still benefit um, from the kind of aggregated um, um, work ethic, or sorry, uh, work output of of my family, and therefore my kind of um, my my uh, my state of life, my my material life was very much kind of linked to the work I could do, and and I had a role, and I had a place, and I had a network, and I had a home, and you know I benefited from that. Now. You know, these are very kind of rule of thumb. You know, of course, there are, you know, variances outside of that. But as a rule of thumb, disabled people kind of pre-industrial revolution mostly had, when they had a family who had a, a job or land, they had a role to participate in that and a stake in society through that. Um, so then we had the industrialization and the factorizing and the factorizing of society and what that meant was lots of people leaving the land going into urban settings where work became you know broken down into single tasks very repetitive very um long hours very harsh conditions very demanding um tight spaces lots of people thrown in together having to you know do the same things over and over again so that became an extremely you know it flipped the situation on its head um for what we understood as disabled people, um, you know, people who varied from the physical norms um, and, and you know, cognitive norms. And that, that sort of restructuring within society then excluded huge amounts of people. Um, and of course, by the very nature of that changing over and the conditions that, it, that, that emerged from that, what you then had was an even higher number of people who were feeling that both physical mental and cognitive impact of this new reality um, as we were finding ourselves at the time. So what we then had was a society which was now driven in the eye, you know, down the line of mercantile capitalism, um, running rampant, which had new forms of extraction, um, which were now not um, conducive to disabled people finding or, you know, 
um, maintaining that stake in society. They no longer had, you know, their connection to their family network. They no longer had that um, ability to reproduce and benefit from that collective reproduction of product and for their uh, for their lives to be materially improved. Um, so we still had that large group of people. Now we had a society which wasn't inclusive of them, so something needed to be done. So what we saw was both kind of um, attitudinal and societal um, changes and kind of infrastructure and, and policy changes, which were mostly about saying, so how do we deal with this group of people? Um, you know, quite clearly their bodily form, their relationship to themselves is the determining factor in how we deal with them, um, you know, what they represent. Um, is a is a manifestation of being unable to deal with a new society. They're unfit. They're broken. They can't cope with new emerging practices, new emerging technologies, um, new emerging reorganizations. And these people need to be catered for outside of that system. And who's going to do that? And what we then got was two real kind of um, players coming into this market. And we had the kind of uh, medical sector, you know, through hospitals and um, there then kind of overlap with the uh, religious sector, which was, you know, part and parcel of kind of providing lots of medical care at the time. So we had these two groups of people who were kind of uh, instilled with the responsibility of hiving off these broken people and providing for them, whether that was care or clothes or food or roofs over their head or whatever. And pretty much like, you know, there are variances, there are kind of wanderings outside of that but pretty much there we stayed for about 150 or 200 years where disabled people unless you were born into a wealthy family um, into some form of privilege um, but most disabled people were as as soon as they were born or very early on separated out from society and if they could be fixed if they could be you know, if their body, broken bodies could be added to to make them more aesthetically pleasing, if they're kind of, um, you know, their their uh, mental variances could be kind of uh, uh, pushed down and suppressed so that they could at least function within society, then they would be accommodated and tolerated in some, you know, um, in some role and welcome back to a certain degree. However, you know, the relationship was still very much, you are broken, you need to be fixed. And until you fix yourself, society, doesn't really have a place or to accommodate you. And you kind of fast forward 152 years into the point where we then started to see mid 20th century, um, uh, you know, from the early part of the 20th century to the mid part of the 20th century, women's uh, uh, suffrage movement, kind of anti-war movement, and then uh, 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 civil rights liberation movement in the states and all of these kinds of things and, and Stonewall and all of these kinds of things kicking off in around the same period and you had two groups of people both in the states and in the United Kingdom kind of watching in on this and kind of um, looking at this as themselves and, and, and you had a bunch of um, uh, people in the US who were um, trying to gain access to the uh, to university and what you had was in the UK you had a group of people who were still locked up in these institutions that were run by charities and medical charities and religious charities all over the United Kingdom and they were very much seeing particularly the civil rights movement um, in the United States as having exactly the same um, 
um, uh, conditions, material conditions for them, that people were oppressed, that they were denied their rights and not access to decision making about their own lives, and that there, you know, we you could quite clearly identify that as a capitalist system, which was the means of oppression, and that all these various, you know, whether it was the state, whether it was corporations, um, the various elements of that also benefited from keeping that position in place, um, and then in various different ways, they both started. Um, calling out the systems that were part of that oppression. Um, so if I focus particularly on the UK for a moment, then what you had was a group of those residents in long stay accommodation around the country who often didn't own their own underwear or toothbrushes. They were kind of, um, you know, uh, bank resources that everybody in the home would use. So no sense of dignity, completely dehumanized. And they said, look, these these institutions are benefiting financially they're getting money to provide all of these things they're making decisions we are having professionals and people who have no lived experience making decisions for us it's an extremely patriarchal patronizing system and we demand a stake in this we demand to be um uh, uh recognized and acknowledged for our own worth and that the reason that these things happen are that um what has happened is that the, that society has abdicated its responsibility for the relationship between it and disabled people and what it has done it is it made disabled people's broken bodies in, in inverted commas the the problem whereas what this movement of people this group of people did was they separated out the two terms of of, of identity and one was that people with impairments who were people who would variances from the physical mental and cognitive norms that they existed within society but that society then had in place a set of, a set of barriers be they environmental economic attitudinal um uh, political um environmental that these barriers were what disabled people with impairments to produce a, to produce a very specific set of outcomes which was low education which was poverty which was excluded from society and that what needed to be done was that society needed to take responsibility for acknowledging its disabling um, structures, institutions and processes and to redress the balance from that angle and that disabled people needed to be recognised as um, having the same rights that are inalienable to everybody else, that we had the same sake in society and that we were, um, that we were worthy of um, leading our own decisions about our lives and taking decisions about the things that affected us in the same way that everybody else did. And that kind of manifested in the UK between the mid 60s and kind of up into the 90s in various forms of, of, of political growth. And what you had was you had the development of things like on a very kind of uh, mainstream level, organizations like this, which are charities, which are run by disabled people, um, which are uh, you know, managed by disabled people, staffed by disabled people and, and, and managing services and really kind of empowering disabled people to have a stake in local, in local decisions and policy making while also dealing with the sharp ends of the outcomes of those policy and decisions. You also had a kind of uh, uh, a rebranding of, 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 of that political descent into a, moving away from an academic kind of critique and analysis into a far more kind of direct action civil disobedience base, which took on different forms through things like the campaign for accessible transport, piss on pity, um, the direct action network. Um, and then that kind of in the mid 90s, you had a kind of the Blair 
Labour government as it was preparing for power was kind of getting into bed with this movement, which was extremely powerful at the turn of the 90s, which closed down ITN, which blocked off several cities, train stations and, and managed to kind of move a lot of the um, uh, uh, attitudes, mainstream attitudes out in the public quite a long distance through that kind of confrontational form of politics. But then when the Labour Party got in, you had some kind of watering down of the demands. You had the kind of pulling out the leadership of that movement and the promotion into kind of various political and charitable and academic positions, which kind of pulled the teeth of that movement for a very significant period of time until we kind of found ourselves in 2010 again with a new Tory government at the end of the Labour cycle um, which brought us back to DPAC and we certainly looked at the time and we had looked at what had happened and you know in that intervening decade or so you know certainly the um, in in terms of the user-led smaller organizations what had happened was they had become you know they always had a focus on kind of managing um, that two-way relationship with local services and local policy making and local commissioning and the campaigning on the wider stuff but they've been forced into that kind of fundraising service-led um, activity and had, had lost a huge amount of their ability to organize politically and verbalize their demands and just kind of even get people together in that kind of headspace um, then you had the large NGO charities, the for disabled people charities, rather than by disabled people charities. You had them being part of the benefits consortiums and the ODI consultation groups and kind of, you know, messing about at the edges and being seen to kind of challenge this stuff and bang on the table, but essentially happily take hundreds and tens of millions of pounds to kind of, you know, um, deliver services which were often just putting plasters over dealing with the outcome of this kind of policy. And that on the bigger scale, the trade unions, civil society institutions like religious bodies and the private sector, um, but particularly um, political parties had lost, if they ever had, and many of them didn't, but had lost any ability to have a conversation with disabled people because usually being kind of um, uh, hollowed out through deregulation, through um austerity through privatization over 30 40 years meant that they were barely functioning as as entities themselves trade unions were forced to take on more pastoral work looking after their members rather than community building political making you know the labor party had taken a kick in you know and 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 and, and was crashing in on itself so you had these they were unable to perform the functions of dialogue to kind of understand what was happening out there when disabled people were being kind of pushed on to benefits that were absolutely no good when they you know when uh, laws were in existence in the house of in in the house of Commons library that were meaningless you know out in the world so all of these kind of things happened and we found ourselves in a situation where we both had to put out the fires of the existing conditions but also find a way of 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 of, of retouching and kind of reconnecting with all of that history with all of that kind of um um, good work that had been laid down in the previous 50 years um, and bringing that in some form of crash course right into the politics of, of or in, in, into the doing of how we were confronting the fallout of, of the current political conditions. I mean, that's an amazing kind of a uh, very concise in uh, history. And, and I'd like to dig a, deep, a little bit deeper into it because I think it has, it's very instructive and enlightening, not just for the kind of 
struggles of people who have quote-unquote disabilities, but also more generally, um, because I think you've kind of spoken about, you know, almost three levels. And one of them is how you build coalitions within a such diverse community. I mean, you, the word and signifier disability is one that can cover so many different realities that people have and experiences that people have um, yeah. with different needs, really. So when you're speaking about dialoguing, it's also about knowing how to bring into light these you know, diverse needs, but also ones that may have certain unifying themes. The second is, I think really importantly, how to balance this community building with, you know, fighting for quite concrete demands and knowing which concrete demands are to be fought for. And then I think the third one that is probably less spoken about, but I think it's really important is that it's really about, and you mentioned this a couple times, um, but not just fighting for the rights of people with disabilities, but to really ideologically put into question the history and powerful implications of ideologies of normalization this notion that there is such a thing as normality. Um, and I think in a certain sense, that's been much more that you, you see some of the victories in this culturally and the fact that certainly within the mental health industry, you now have moved from towards ideas of neurodiversity. I think also we've kind of potentially started to, even if it's, it's I think still uh, a way long way to go, in terms of thinking beyond, you know, an ideal body image or way of being physically towards ways of physically being in the world. But I wanted to kind of ask you as a campaigner, I mean, these are, you know, really, really huge and different struggles that all have to be taken on. So how do you kind of balance that on the one hand, community building internally and making, you know, coalitions of a very diverse group of people? On the other hand, knowing how to make demands and which demands to be made and where. And then thirdly, engaging in this kind of really serious, often generational kind of discursive struggle over, you know, remaking what we think of is a good society. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think um, number one is kind of uh, maybe what I wasn't so, what I glossed over, and this has become the tool for how we do everything. It's kind of in the process and the, in the 60s of kind of understanding where the structural barriers lay. We developed, you know, we considered, and I use the royal we here in, in terms of the disability movement, what it, what it kind of, you know, the simplest way to understand it was up until the 1960s, the mid 20th century, that the medical model, the medical form of framing disabled people as this medical thing is wrong with their body was the kind of dominant discourse around everything um, to do with disability. So there was always this kind of tragic, pity, broken model of kind of medicalizing the, um, the, the body and the self and, the, and using that to determine the relationship with everything else. And the movement then kind of moved that into what we, you know, to speak a bit about kind of putting the responsibility in society. And we kind of um, framed that as the social model of saying that, the, you know, the barriers to a positive relationship existed because of society so if we then take that you know that we take a barrier focused approach to identifying what the barriers are honestly and then kind of a practical approach of once we can identify um as a as an individual and as a group what the barriers may be we can start to mitigate them so um as a collective so 
the very first thing that kind of, you know, putting out fires and, and, and finding that common ground and how we do community building and kind of, you know, in uh, broadening that relationship and kind of ally building and all of those things is number four, number one, I think, accepting that that that, that social model is, um, it, it, it works for us because it identifies a certain set of barriers that are, that are um, useful for us to identify in order to mitigate, but that it also is really useful to, to for any individual or collective to identify the barriers that they face, um, either, either individually as a, or as a group as well. And that we, that we aren't aware of those barriers, that, you know, that, um, that it is a tool that can be applied by particularly any group across society. And that if we kind of understand that it is an applicable tool, um, that we can maybe then work with others to start sharing that tool, to start sharing that analysis, to start sharing those practices of kind of, um, of how we go about doing that. So, you know, like I said earlier about, you know, even on a very kind of tangible level of, uh, separating out barriers from environmental to kind of economic so that you know whether you are a migrant whether you are um, a mother that actually that you know us looking at an, an economic barrier is just as useful for you um you know to for for understanding your participation in what it in in what is about to come or what is going on as it is for us. So identifying that common ground of where the tools we have can be used to other people, by other people and kind of working with them to, to you know, to, to learn from them and to kind of uh, bring our experience to them um, and, and, and to see how that can be developed. So I think using the social model as a practical guide to organizing is, 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 is where we begin with everything so whether that is even internally and in saying whether we are trying to attack to it to to how are we ensuring that we are bringing the broadest range of disabled people who that we aren't just centralizing around physically able people who are often erudite and and able to kind of um, come across extremely well particularly in these kinds of scenarios, but also bring people who are far more marginalized even within our own community. Um, so we have tried to, to, to use it internally as a tool for kind of making sure that we are keeping our own hearts in order, that we are doing prefigurative practice, that we are making um, real the things that we are saying and how we are doing those things, and then making sure that we are applying that right across. And I think that once we understand that naming that identifying the structures that are oppressing us as barriers, that kind of naming them as barriers and the beneficiaries of of that um, really helps us to kind of, um, when it comes to ally building, because often other communities have been through this analysis and critique um, process themselves and often come to the understanding that it is very often the same groups of people who benefits in the same way from having the same series of oppressions and actually coming together to share our knowledge and understanding and tools and tactics and and even to benefit from each other's kind of morale and love and and all of those things is is really important so kind of how we go about it is by absolutely holding the social model as a central organizing principle um, both internally and externally um, by recognizing that actually kind of, you know, um, really and truly, 
you know, you touched upon it, the term disability is often used as a signifier by a particularly visible, aesthetically kind of identifiable group of people um, or used to mean that group of people when actually, you know, disability is, is, is in, in, if you take it kind of, if you strip it back, it is actually kind of, you know, meaningless in and of its own terms because it's still using s some form of medicalization to mm -hmm. identify, you know, um, uh, 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 to frame an identity. But the truth is that really what we're saying is this group of people who share this characteristic at this particular period coalesce around these issues because these issues are having significant impact on their daily lives. But actually, you know, that really, it could be me as a parent, it could be me as a migrant, it could be me as an advice worker, do you know what I mean? Like, it, um, it really, it, it's a useful term to give people a totem, which for one kind of um, um, gives them a, a, an understanding of their own conditions and, 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 and making sense of that, but also it is useful for kind of bringing people together for, a, you know, um, a more, one of the things that we, one of the things, look, when we're doing direct actions and, and civil disobedience, so what happens is we can sit and we can, you know, whether it's with UK and CAR or whoever it was that we were organizing at the time. And we would have conversations with people who were, you know, we bring on board into organizing and, and, and planning and, and, you know, people just weren't interested in taking part. And often, you know, there would be a lot of kind of uh, new skills developed and kind of people were starry eyed and kind of coming into this and, you know, often scared or confused or worried, lots of different experiences. But it, what we found was that when you put people in the street, when you put them together in a collective space in which they were the dominant narrative, in which the conversation was being had on their terms, what happened was they, they found a different view of themselves. They found a different view of their understanding with the relationship with the institutions like the police, like the media, like uh, political institutions. They they had the veil lifted around actually what they understood was their relationship with the wider public. So by, you know, we can take people so far and all of this political stuff can take people so far, but I believe the transformational bit is actually the bit where people are put into that collective situation because that's the bit for me that 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 is the meaningful bit because it's in those moments that mm. all the conversations you've had with people that when you, you know, when you see them in that space and sometimes they're, you know, you know, in the build up there, they can be anxious or people can be kind of really excited about, you know, like, but when they're there, when they feel that, 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 that collective sense of, of ownership, one of, 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 of the collective force of each other and then ownership over a space and then wider than that ownership over kind of how the relationship is determined, the new relationship now with the police in these moments, the new relationship in the public with these moments, mm -hmm. that moment is like, is, is for me extremely transformational. That's the moment in which people kind of re-understand all of this stuff. So by directly linking how we prepare and how we talk, whether it's narrative, whether it's organizing meetings, whether it's how we use social media, whether it's the autonomy of local groups, whether it's the skills development, all of those things for me 
only contribute or are only building to that sense of individual and collective power that people take themselves. And that I think has been our most useful too, because in that people have then found themselves transformed and empowered and actually take on this work themselves. They start to make the connections in their local areas, you know, whether it's with their local people's assembly or XOR group or UK cop group, and they start bringing them into their, you know, they start connecting those dots at a very much a local level or in, you know, trade union that they've been a member of all their lives, but have never really taken part. And now, you know, so it it's at that moment when people, I think, you know, the learning is from not so much from the moment of, of, of building for those big kind of transformational, uh, transformational kind of episodes. It's the, 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 the really powerful stuff and the meat and drink is in the moments after that, when people go back into their own kind of lives and workplaces and communities and take that powerful stuff with them. So we, we often find that learning by the, 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 that by using the social model as a central principle to how we do everything that that gives us the most transformational outcomes because we see the tangible evidence in that because people then go back to their own communities and put those practices into place hugely um so yeah i think we learn by doing and we and that's the you know everything we do is is by centering that you know we make mistakes we you know we've we've gotten things wrong and and you know hugely of course we do you know like any group of people, any self-selecting group of people, but what we have found is that by taking that approach, by centering the social model, that is the most transformational um, kind of thing that we can do and that people learn most readily from that because the, those experiences resonate with them because often they've been institutionalized into thinking they can't make these decisions, they can't have a stake, and when they're freed up to, they take on a completely different kind of um, set of understandings and then they take that into the things that they do, which is for me the best kind of bit of this work. Absolutely. I mean, I almost want to take just pause there because I think you you articulated something so important about any kind of social struggle, but also any type of radical or revolutionary intervention, which is that when we keep kind of speak about self-organizing we forget the self part the, the defense that it is an empowering moment um and you know before you make another world you have to be actually able to be given the skills and the, the experiences that you are you know uh, someone who's not just a subject of history but its maker so yeah. i think yeah. i think that's really beautiful um and, and i think it also speaks to the ways in which some of the experiences you're speaking about have very strong intersectionalities and solidarities with a whole range of other movements um, that often aren't spoken about. So I know this type of social kind of model as a means of radical kind of transformation has also been used as something, and I mean this, you know, as politically therapeutic for people who, for instance, are coming back as part of the anti-war movement and you know, uh, are part of these struggles in a way that, you know, they, they come back with PTSD or they come back with physical injuries and more than just being taken care of, they're actually part of a struggle, part of a campaign, part of a awareness raising that makes them feel no longer helpless. So I think yeah. that's important. I think you mentioned uh, something that for you is probably really, really obvious, but I think for many of our listeners is 
so central. You mentioned this way back um, in your first answer, but it'd be great if you could kind of expound on it a little bit and then talk about how this represents a different mode of being community building that often in our liberal kind of societies, we don't really take on. Uh, and that is the difference of having organizations that are for people and by people, and ones that are kind of user-led and ones which aren't. Um, because I think that was a key part that uh, you spoke about, which is, you know, even NGOs that may have good intentions, if they're not being user-led, if they're for as opposed to by, there's a certain kind of serious radicality and democratization that is being missed. So how do you kind of, I mean, because obviously every organization is going to have a whole range of members, um, but how do you think about you know, organizations of solidarity and action that are ultimately, you know, by and user-led as opposed to for people and in meaningful or not, often patronizing? Yeah. Um, so... It, you know, I spoke a bit about being prefigurative and, 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 and that is a kind of basic condition. You know, it is a starting point that if, if, if you are as a kind of network or as a, as, as a community leading groups of people that you feel are worthy of your kind of, um, you know, your voice and your, your efforts, but actually you don't have a lived experience and, and, you know, we we value lived experience because we we see ourselves as the experts by experience. So we say that actually, you know, we have had 150 years, 200 years collectively of kind of being told what we need, being told how we're broken, and being told kind of what the solution is to that. And it was never the solution; it was always somebody else's easy way out, um, and often made our lives here, you know, much more difficult. Um, so. In terms of um, you know how how that works is it's it's extremely important to kind of begin with where people are at and people are often at you know a really um, a really uh, what's the a really intense lived experience as a disabled person you know even even in in a relatively well developed country as this. Um, your experience as a disabled person uh, can be often and often is one will be um, one of institutionalization. As I said, you know, this is one of two countries in the whole world not to have signed up to inclusive education. So even before you go to school, you are guaranteed that you will be discriminated against before you start school. So if you're, if you're going in, into an education system, disadvantaged, never mind coming out of one. If you are already starting below, then you know your relationship with the world is determined from a very, very young age. So actually your your experiences um, are absolutely vital in framing what you um, believe to be um, imbalances. Yeah, because on a, and we kind of backtrack because there's a series of things that I'm trying to get straight in my head to kind of remember. So, yeah, um, look, what we found is that when it's been left to other people, what we've had, what has happened is we've been exploited, we have been abused, we have been, uh, um, you know, uh, 
uh, wholesaled, we have been kind of stockpiled. Um, and what it has left with is really bad politics. So what we have ended up with is institutions which are non-representative, which are also part of benefiting from and exploiting us, which don't have, which have a vested interest in perpetuating the system. And, you know, what that does is it forces people um, into into that kind of always believing that the solution was in other people, that other people had access to the resources, the knowledge, the um, the decision-making ability. And what never happened was that um, we weren't brought in that conversation. So bringing a sense of agency. So the very, you know, when you start to bring people um, or, 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 or to value people's own experience, just in that itself is, is again, one of those moments where people start to kind of look at themselves differently, where people start to see um, their own relationship with themselves from a different angle. And then once you've developed a sense of agency in, in that, in, in people, you can start to kind of build on how they see that with the rest of the world. But, um, yeah, sorry. Um, no, no, I, I think that's really important. And I, I think that, you know, that was a kind of big question, but it, it, I think you answered it, you know, really significantly and well, which is, you know, this kind of empowerment um, and, and transformation in terms of making sure that you're the driver of what is happening to you and that you're not just being resubjected and exploited. And, and I think this is something that, you know, I, I want to kind of, explore with you in terms of people talk a lot about dehumanizing and I, I think there's that there but there's something that uh, I would term and it's probably not as elegant but kind of de-citizenship which is yep. this idea that okay you're human but you're kind of and, and I'm going to be provocative here for a second Andy I hope it's all right but it's almost like I've noticed with this you're almost like a nuisance and yep. you know we, we only have to talk to you um, but really your concerns are just making things harder for everyone. And, and I was really interested in this in terms of the fact that you kind of, I think very, very uh, diplomatically, I, I was impressed how you did this, but nevertheless, forcefully, when there was a campaign, for instance, uh, or um, uh, to create free bikes, which, you know, is a really good idea. Um, I, you know, but it was very interesting to me that you made the very kind of just obvious point that, well, how this was being done, we weren't consulted with as a community. And this would make, you know, if this isn't done correctly, this would, you know, limit our access. So we have to make sure that there's bike lanes. We have to make sure that things are, you know, and what was interesting to me was twofold was the fact that a supposedly progressive initiative didn't even think to engage with the disability community to be like, we all think this would be a good idea, but you know, what are your about this and how can we implement them? Oftentimes, in a way that I think that if they did that from the beginning, they would find that, you know, there's a really constructive, easy solutions to a lot of things that later become much more problematic. But then also some of the underlying ways in which I think it was reported on, which was almost like when you did raise these concerns, which I thought were very, very straightforward and not, you know, not necessarily that radical. They were pretty just logistical. It was almost like, why are you trying to make a really good scheme more difficult. And it's it's kind of a shifting of, you know, as if your voice doesn't need to be taken into account as, you know, a fellow citizen. Um, and I was really interested in that process of how we shift that so that, you know, 
you are being consulted with as a citizen and as a community and that your things are not seen kind of retrospectively, but formatively as important and as necessary and equal to everyone else's. Um, yeah, so I think the best way to understand it is, is to look at the NGO charity sector, because I think it's, it's, it's really informative, right? Um, so what you've got there is a group of people who, who, who have been engaged in form of forms of uh, service delivery, housing, whatever it is for, in many cases, decades and decades and decades, um, and who have learned really, really well how to appropriate the language. So we are talking about social inclusion and user-led and, you know, democratic accountability, but also, you know, really in terms of, of disability stuff, talking about being accessible and inclusive. And, and actually, when you start to look at, when you start, you know, it, scope it only, you know, we're still running what were called special schools up until a couple of years ago. You know, um, when Leonard Cheshire um, disability came to making people redundant in one of the rounds of their, one of their more recent rounds of funding, um, uh, cuts, the first thing they did was make all their disabled disability employment reps redundant as part of the wider um, team, whereas all the non-disabled employment reps stayed in their posts. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it, you know, w w what we have is a society taking the model of the NGOs, which has really learned really sharply about how language is powerful and how, you know, public opinion is a critical thing. And if you're not seen to have policies which are about equal uh, equal opportunities and accessibility and sticking to the law and all those kinds of things, then people get on your case. You know, so they become you know, society as a whole has become really, really sharp at that. You know, it, it, if you see now, there are kind of little tiny inroads in various places, you know, just as a kind of an aside, almost, you know, you try and find a mainstream soap opera on British television that doesn't have a disabled character now. It has one disabled character in most of them, you know, um, and, you know, so what they've, what they've done is they found a way of kind of using tokenism, appropriating language, using policies to um, to kind of say, okay, you know, people are, are you know, this is a new forward-looking um, and inclusive model of society that we're trying to build and we're going forward. We've made some mistakes and, you know, we'd like to bring it. But actually what we, and, and this is where being user-led is really critical because when we came into the debate, when disabled people themselves came into the debate, if you look at 2010, you had the big charities, the politicians, the advice groups, lots of them saying, you know, the work capability assessment, it needs re needs a bit of adjusting, it's doing some damage and, you know, like it's not quite working and it's badly designed, and, but it really, it's okay, it just needs fixing. Um, whereas actually disabled people were saying this is absolutely traumatizing, people are taking their own lives, people are being stripped of benefits and being pushed into poverty mm -hmm. who are already just barely barely surviving on a day-to-day -day basis. And then over a period of time, that undiluted voice, that managing our own stage, that changed the narrative which brought the political parties, the mainstream media, the general public, um, the advice agencies, that we brought them with us by dominating that, by creating our own spaces. It, 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 it showed that actually all of these other institutions have vested interests in perpetuating this. They are all kind of telling you a version of their truth, none of which is rooted in lived experience. Um, this is the value of having us here 
to actually speak truth to power, to be able to say your decision on an abstract level has meant my mother took her life or meant my mother, my father died of starvation left on his own or these care cuts are meant that my, my granny now goes 15 hours without a hot meal um, every single day. You know, so the value of having that kind of lived experience and that user-led voice is that it cuts through all the um, traffic, which is all um, taking space within certain parameters. We can talk about welfare benefits, but we can't talk about them needing to go. We can talk about them needing adjustment, and we can talk about them needing refinement, but we can't talk about this being the wrong thing to do. So, you know, in, in us coming into that centre, we changed the dialogue because what happened was, the you know, the the fringes, the other anti-austerity groups kind of um, all were, were taking that model of, of, of platforming and centering user experiences to people who were having to deal with the fallout. And that resonated with people because what happened was people changed from just being uh, seen as recipients and claimants and numbers to actual people with actual lives and, 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 and real emotions and real kind of um, people saw themselves reflected back at them and not just mm. some kind of technocrat spouting policy and figures, which was meaningless to people. And that gave them cover. Because if you look at between 2010 and 2012, the University of Glasgow did a study which looked at the kind of language that was being used around disabled people in the mainstream media. And what it found was that using a narrative like work shy, fraudsters, scroungers, this kinds of thing, led directly to a spike in disability hate crime right across the country. Mm-hmm. And then when, when, when you start to see um, disabled people themselves entering into that public space and reframing that dialogue, then you start to see a breakdown in public attitudes in terms of kind of, you know, people were, you know, uh, were saying, well, look, of course we want, you know, the most cost-efficient welfare system, but at, not at the expense of the most vulnerable, as they saw, or the people who needed it most. So we started to see a shift, and that was, so th- that was directly linked to the kind of narrative that was being used to, used to sell that kind of political program and move society's attitudes to then disabled people centering themselves and changing that discourse by by disrupting that and cutting right into public spaces, not using the kind of the, the, the traditional kind of uh, roots of, 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 um, of dissent that were laid down and kind of write a letter to your local paper and see your local MP. You know, we cut through all of that because we had been sold out because we were led by four organisations. We had been sold out by the NGOs, by the big charities who were still participating in this policy development, in this kind of um, broader uh, political repositioning of kind of where society's ills were moved away from casino banking in the 28-29 period, the DOA-09 period where there were big conversations happening around kind of kinds of society we wanted to see in the fallout of 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 the 208 crash. We started to have you know bigger conversations about where we wanted our resources to go, what we wanted to prioritize, whether it was banks or services. And then we started to subtly see it kind of move into a public spending kind of um, and an overspending kind of narrative. So the threat of that for a very small window had kind of pushed down on, you know, the need for a really big disciplining 
um, um, discourse to be had and put out there to, you know, to identify another, a they that were the reason that things were going wrong. But in, in their kind of decision making, I believe that they, they, they misstepped in terms of political decision makers, um, particularly the coalition government and those that were kind of allied with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because, you know, this isn't just about the coalition government, particularly around welfare benefits. If you take that as an example, you have the kind of insurance hedge fund industry that is, you know, dominating world capital and the movement of capital around the world, particularly in terms of workforces and, and exploiting workforces and creating conditions. These kind of um, um, insurance companies were driving welfare reform, both, not, both in the States and the UK, um, and were benefiting directly from it. Um, so by us kind of getting in there, we we transformed that. And you could see that in terms of the, trans, yeah, the transformation of the Labour Party and the dialogue there, the movement of uh, external movements of things like momentum, um, the world transformed, these kinds of things, which were kind of built on the backs of that that position holding that organisations like Deepak did, like UK and Cut did, like the Occupy movement did, when almost nobody was 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 prepared to situate people's lived experience as a counter narrative to everybody buying into this is what needed to happen with the austerity program, every, you know, over a period of time by holding out and holding out and centering and continuously using that 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 local connection to bring up these lived experiences, people's own views and new voices into the center of that debate, we shifted everything. And I truly believe that we brought everything with us. Now, there is a massive, one of the things we did last year as Deepak, we went to the World Transformed and held a mirror up to the movement. Um, and I'm talking about the kind of British left movement between 2010 and, and, and now over that 10 years, which has taken on kind of two two or three kind of convergences or distinct identities to me, what began as a kind of anti-austerity movement and then kind of broadened out into a wider kind of left movement and then narrowed down to a tip of the spear into a kind of very carbon socialist kind of very specific kind of movement. Um, but what we did was we held a, a mirror up to the various incarnations of that um, over time. And what we found was that there's kind of a direct relation, a, a direct inverse relationship between the power and resource and size of institutions and how inclusive and accessible and good at centering user-led experience, giving people their own kind of space, supporting people on their own terms. So if you look at things like the Occupy movement in UK and Cut, which compared to Momentum, the Labour Party, the trade unions, had a minuscule amount of resource experience networking to draw upon actually those smaller networks and smaller um, key parts of the left building program they let themselves bear they let themselves at the mercy of the disability movement they said like what do we need to know what do we need to do how do we work with you what are your terms you know what can we bring to amplify your messages um, whereas then you had the kind of the big institutions coming in and saying here are kind of what we need and here's how we can do things and you need to kind of dovetail with us rather than, you know, um, really kind of respond to our needs in a way which was useful or effective. Um, so I think there is a kind of a lesson for us, a salutary lesson in terms of where communities are like ours put our juice um, and 
often we are presented with it as a case of balance and you know a case of kind of um you know well we must get into the bed with the big parties in order to have the social change to have the policies carry through and to get that message out whereas actually what we found is that people like UK and Cotton and the Occupy movement were far more willing partners and far more effective in the long run because again they were they were centering their principles of that kind of um you know on uh, on people's own terms nothing about us without us on that kind of formation rather than dictating to us because they felt the power dynamic enabled them to do so and i think in terms of how how we take that dialogue and lessons from it it's about kind of looking at where the meaningful intent comes from and often for me that is in other user-led groups who actually value those kinds of experiences and value those kind of um, um, relationships within the group and those kind of power dynamics in the sense of trying to organize horizontally, non-hierarchically, trying to find ways of making sure that people's divergences and variances are built into the structures and not tolerated or excluded from them that they are you know that they are the form of organizing that we do um and 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 those smaller groups and and networks and 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 communities who value that were often the most willing and effective partners um in 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 our kind of um you know development over that time Hmm. no and, and i think that that also speaks to or, or points to needs to also bring together communities, not just uh, struggle or coalition or campaigning, but also creation um, and something positive and ones that are, as you said, centered in, you know, principles, but also centered in the lived experiences of the people who are most affected by them. Um, and, I, and I think that brings us then to, we've talked a lot about the history and then the present politics, but you've been doing, and a lot of people have started to do this, um, some really exciting work about actually creating um, kind of different economic model for building and producing uh, resources, tools um, for um, uh, you know, people who are disabled. So you've uh, been working on uh, using technology and 3D printing and other forms of distributed manufacturing and creating spaces and events for actually creating, allowing for um, user-led kind of economic communities of manufacturing creation. Um, so I know you have an event on May 20th, but I thought we could talk about this in the broader terms about how these new technologies are allowing for a kind of movement from, as you said, oftentimes, you know, very campaign focused, very issue driven to ones that are actually creating alternative economies that directly can take on, even at a localized level, um, some of these broader capitalist forces that you mentioned. Yeah, um, I mean, we were given a real, I mean, in Irish terms, we had our arses handed to us in December, um, um, you know, like properly in terms of when we looked around what, you know, the general election, probably one of the biggest um, uh, uh, events and episodes, certainly in, you know, since I've been in this country, um, nearly 30 years. Um, so when you kind of look at that, that whole process, the build-up and everything that was going on, despite the fact that disabled people have been, you know, had built a movement or certainly had 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 um, had had a movement built on its efforts um, over the last 10 years. So when you looked at kind of, you would have really thought that that kind of 
input would have produced at the end a really kind of informed, educated conversation around many of the issues that were kind of facing disabled people as we went into the 21st century um, and kind of our, our understanding of that. And there was nothing. You know, we weren't represented on the left, apart from a very narrow conversation about being passive recipients of services, particularly benefits and social care. Um, and everything else was kind of, you know, uh, missing, you know. And taking a look at that, like we, you know, just looked at it and thought, this isn't good enough. We've, you know, we've put out a huge amount of energy here and we've made very small inroads. So what do we need to do? And, and how do we, how do we, how do we claim some other sort of stake? And one of the things we, we, we had a conversation around was kind of, look, the politics is, is absolutely essential. Um, and it needs to be interwoven through everything that we do. And social change and, 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 and what we're trying to achieve needs to be the end outcome. But the road there needs to be more subtle and it needs to be more soft-edged and it needs to have much bigger punches that hit you long after you realise what's been done. Because what we need is we need a, a sense of collective agency which is undeniable the next time this big set of decisions and conversations are going to be had as a society whether this is democratic and constitutional, whether it is around things like economic changes like UBI, whatever it is, the next set of decisions and conversations that we face as a country, disabled people need to be automatically understood to be having a central role in that. And how do we get from here to there? So kind of what we looked at was, look, where are the, where are the opportunities where society is going to develop over the next few years and what are the big conversations that are going to arise out of that and kind of how do we intervene in that and so one of the kind of things we thought is that we need to start looking at how we open and broaden the conversation culturally as a kind of soft edge how we kind of talk about disability referencing the 21st century and what it means to be a disabled person in the 21st century and what are the examples, the positive examples of that at the moment that exist? Mm -hmm. um, and then how we can use that to intervene in those or, or, or to open spaces for these big conversations. So, um, look, I'm a nearly 50 year old um, white male, so I'm not exactly sure what, whether my cultural references are kind of <laughs> going to be the, 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 the kind of high water bar going forward. But certainly I thought, look, we need institutions, we need assets, we need um, forms of identity to go forward which claim a stake in society, which offer disabled people as valuable experts on our own terms with something to offer. So firstly, developing these mechanisms through things like, and I've created a thing called the World Independent Living Day, which is the 5th of the 5th, the 5th of May. And what we are trying to do, and this will be the inaugural one, what we're trying to do is bring together the best examples of that, so we are going to have things like the wheelchair motocross uh, WCMX uh, stunt riders on a on a on a fully accessible skate park. We're going to have a mixed disability martial arts team doing a display and doing taster sessions. Like you said, we have Paul Doyle, who is one of the country's leading experts on access access and inclusion and three D printing and technology. Um, and we are going to have a virtual reality. Um, version of the skate park so that people can come along and try those stunts out for themselves without hurting themselves. We've got the UK's leading 
disabled grime artists, comedians, spoken word artists. So we have a really exciting thing. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to build that as a as as an example of real world and online spaces where people can come together, where we can start to have conversations about those kinds of things. And we're hoping that, for example, in terms of 3D technology, um, one of my ambitions is to, at some point, 3D print a, a, a collectively designed accessible home right in the centre of London. Um, we can now 3D print a house in somewhere between 3D, uh, three days and a, and a week. And I think, you know, over the space of a year, we can collectivise what accessible truly means. We can, you know, the the Royal Institute of British Architects has now managed to kind of embed how we have integrated housing within their coding for both designing and manufacturing homes. So there is now a kind of means of from concept to live reality of of making the most accessible homes at every stage of the way. Um, mm. So, like, I don't know, you know, I I don't know whether things like tree, printing 3D houses are the answer to being accessible housing, but I certainly know that on a spectrum of building bricks and mortar to handing over billions to private developers to put us into tiny boxes uh, made of bricks and mortar for the rest, you know, as we always have done, you know, now and henceforth going forward. Somewhere between that and personalizing your own house at 16 that you can build and rebuild and redo as your support needs and access needs develop over time, you know, somewhere between those two is a bigger conversation to be had about what it means to be a disabled person, what it mm. means to have a stake, a physical stake in, in, in an inclusive environment in your society, one that houses you and your family and works for you. So I think that conversation is the one that we need to be having through building mm. a 3D house somewhere in the middle of London. So I want to open up these big conversations. And I think technology, if you look at Japan's robot strategy, um, which I think is traumatic is a word that I would use, um, you know, uh, in, in how they've kind of um, really just kind of turbo boosted their conversation, um, not involved disabled people kind of at all in, um, in this and how it's absolutely horrific looking in from the outside. Um, mm. it, you know, there are real clear examples now of how it can start to go badly wrong. And I want, as I see disabled people being involved in those technological conversations and having these institutional and cultural um, developments, I think we can start to look at how we can develop our own community assets, how we can use things like data. We are the most interactive community with the state in this state. We, you know, the, 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 there is forms of collective agency that we can wall off and, and, and build for ourselves and then come back into society. Um, you know, as as an equal partner, because I think there is a huge amount that that is that is potentially possible, and and we have to kind of be be be, be ready for those big things. Absolutely. I mean, I I will only speak for myself, um, which is that what you've spoken about is really something so significant in reframing how we think about emancipation and the possibilities of something like socialism, which is that we oftentimes think of capitalism as that which gives us the most options. But if you look at something like 3D printing, and as you said, you know, the uh, distributed manufacturing um, uh, and digital fabrication of houses, for instance, or wheelchairs, they not only, they are just part of the solution, but one thing they also do is it creates a sense of individuation customization that is quite radical. 
So instead of saying a one size fits all strategy uh, for wheelchairs, you actually create a community where people can design them based on their own accessibility needs. Same with houses. And I think this is what like these types of technologies can provide and also creating user led kind of open communities of sharing knowledge. So yes. looking at designs that other people have made and saying, oh, I could use that, but I'd also like to use this. And then being able to report back and saying, this is my experience with it so that when other people design their own, they learn from that. And, and I think it's that also reframing. And, and I really like that this may be a good place to kind of ask the final question. Is like, but you really kind of think about turning a traditional notion of marginalization and victimization into we are actually the cutting edge. We're the people who have, you know, the most collective agency. We're the people who have, you know, the ability to collect data about our community and use it in impactful ways. And I think that's really exciting to, you know, think that in 10 years, for instance, I mean, my son is three, that if he thinks about the quote unquote disability community, he won't think about it as marginalized, but as, oh, these are the people on the cutting edge of like creating a more accessible society. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, I want to ask, uh, did I ask all the guests, but I did also wanted to give you a space and we'll put this on the webpage, um, just to talk for a couple minutes uh, and give logistical information and how people can involve with the amazing event that you're doing in May. Yeah. Um, so at the minute, we are literally in the last week of tying off all the details in terms of venue and times and artists and all of that and getting the website kind of up and running. So. Um, it is on the 5th of May. Um, it is a central London. It'll be, um, it'll be the, in the tunnels uh, around London Bridge. It's one of the venues there. We, um, we, have, a, we have two venues um, and we're, we're doing two site visits on Friday to kind of decide. But um, So I will hold off on that if that's okay because I just don't have the technical information that would be really useful to people. But as soon as I have it, I will get it to you. Absolutely. And we'll we'll make sure to keep it on our webpage and we'll also yeah. make sure to advertise it in other podcasts because this is yeah. really important. Um, I guess the final thing um, we ask all our guests is, you know, we talk about the title of this uh, podcast, Another World is Potable. Uh, we really believe in Another World is Possible. But I think it's really important to think about it from a concrete level. What would a, a less ableist and more kind of liberated everyday world for you look like? Okay. Um, so I think nothing takes place in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, um, I think that tinkering about at the edges can often do more harm than good. Mm. Um, so I think genuinely, I believe that a, like a world that, that is more accessible and inclusive begins with the acceptance that pretty much everything we've done up until now was wrong. Um, you know, and I think that, that that is a kind of a really difficult thing for people to accept. But actually, you know, if you look at one of the most amazing outcomes out of, out, of, out of the Occupy movement was that huge amounts of people that had felt that um, and often felt that they kind of isolated, felt isolated themselves in thinking that, found each other. And that there's this kind of growing notion amongst us that actually, whether it is, um, whether it is kind of how we, um, 
how we have set ourselves up economically, whether it is how we have set up our legal systems, whether we have set up how we set up our kind of um, our uh, international kind of uh, infrastructure, that none of this functions well. So I think this is this is a growing conclusion that we need to kind of accept. Firstly, I think secondly is that if if a world is, is, is to be built that is inclusive and accessible, then it means questions. Like I'm, 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 I'm someone, I'm a great believer in kind of throwing questions in and then seeing what comes out of that rather than kind of starting with a blank page or dictating to people. So I think, you know, one that brings lots of ones that it, uses technology but also uses human networks that kind of you know that, that that reinvests as much in that kind of real world human connectivity to engage with disabled people or sorry with everybody um not just in an outcome-based conversation but that restarts on a kind of connecting people for the sake of connecting people one of the things that technology was meant to do was in was free up our time so that we could build on relationships and one of the things that we are seeing capital neoliberalism do capitalism and neoliberalism do is use technology as another means of breaking down those relationships mm -hmm. so what i'd like to see is a to to, 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 to flip it on its head and see how we engage technology to, 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 to go back to that aim, but also to, to um, have a contingency or a parallel plan to actually understand that technology is a tool that is best used alongside real world investment and real world community building for its own sake, first and foremost, because I think agenda driven, outcome driven is often just as harmful. I think that actually valuing interconnectivity, valuing um, um, relationships for their own sake because of the the, 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 the the wealth that it brings to your own experience and then building on that. So I think one that uses technology that invent, you know, a, a functioning world builds in the real world on the notion that people are better served by having other people in their lives in a meaningful way. That then out of that comes our common ground, aspirations, and that people are resourced equitably to achieve their aspirations. Um, and that doesn't often, you know, it doesn't always mean equally, you know, people need things in different ways on their own terms. Often two people will need the same tool for different jobs. Often two people will use two different jobs for the same tool. It's not about, as you said, a one size fits all. It's a very kind of um, two way conversation that is about aspiration and not need. And I think that's a really key part in the tone as well, in, in, in the kind of language we use to each other and kind of how we frame everything we do from art to, um, to democracy building, to institution building, to how we manage processes, getting the tone right and, and, and talking aspirationally, talking about kind of the things we want to do with our lives about fulfillment instead of what do you need to do to get through the day? Those kinds of things. So I think, yeah, I think a world is, you know, would do that. It would, it, 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 it would, it would seek to be, bring people in. It would seek, it would seek to do that in a number of ways. It would seek to do that on people's own terms. 
and it would do that about things that are big and bold and beautiful. Um, and I think that doing that, we capture all the essences of inclusion and accessibility unconsciously. And I don't think we need to talk about terms of impairment or disability, because I think that sets the landscape for us all to feel like actually we can move on, move on beyond those things and, and, and talk about things on a much higher level and build things that are much more meaningful and have a much more um, positive impact and 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 that actually bring bring um, peace into people because I I feel like people are shrunk you know people are pushed on and squeezed in and pushed down on and 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 that can be unsettling and troubling just in your psyche and in your just in your body you know and I think people need a bit of peace and I think we do that by 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 trying to envisage the big things by really aiming high and really I you know my favorite quote my kids bought me a tobacco tin which is um, Oscar Wilde's we're all in the gutter and some of us are looking up at the stars and I believe that is the route that is the route to actually kind of you know to do to to, to 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 dream big to look at the stars and to really aim high because in 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 reaching for that we pull us all together you know and i think that's the solution is pulling us all together and if we acknowledge that it's pulling us all together that'll get us there then everything becomes doable within that including inclusion accessibility and all those things i could that's so true and and i think that what you've just articulated is in many ways um the fact that we have to dream big if we want to win another world and another world is possible and it's ours to win. And Andy, I'd like to really thank you because you're a crucial part of winning that world. So thank you so much for this interview and thank you for all you do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now.